are speeding. All okay. Counts. Whenever you're ready. All right. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna do an intro here. Mm-hmm. Okay, guys. We are rolling into another episode of the Candace Owens Show, and I want to talk about a lot of things. I can't be the only person that felt like they had a relatively okay childhood, Uh, didn't really think of myself as just being black. I didn't grow up thinking that there was a race war or a gender war. Um, It was relatively uneventful, which is the way that I think it should have been. And then at some point uh, over the last decade, there was a dramatic shift and suddenly I was being forced to consider both the color of my skin, my gender, uh, how did we get here as a society? Uh, what's actually happening and where are these ideas of exclusion and inclusion coming from? Here to discuss with me is uh, Douglas Murray, the author of The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race, Identity. Douglas, welcome to The Candace Owen Show. Very good to be with you, Candace. I'm super excited to talk to you about a lot of things, um, starting with race, because it's going to be a really easy episode. You're just going to shut up and listen, okay? You <laughs> think that that's the, funny? Is that the plan? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're laughing now. You think that's funny because you're white, and this is in, you're inherently racist. Yeah, yeah. The idea that you would come onto this mm. show and think that you can discuss race with me. Unimaginable. I mean, it's just unimaginable, yeah. so right? Presumptuous. And I can see brewing mm. in your eyes mm. that anger and that mm. rage that that's all right. white people have. I can almost mm. see your ancestors coming through right now on my show. You're just going to shut up and listen, Mm, okay? mm. And if you do talk and give me any feedback, okay, I'm going to go get a bat and I'm going to threaten you. Mm. But by the way, me threatening you and telling you to shut up because you're white is not racist. I am black. I cannot be racist. Can't be done. You are inherently Mm -hmm. racist. Can't not be. How'd I do? Not bad. (laughs) (laughs) Right? That's where we're at. No, we can. uh, That is where we're at. Nothing... Nothing is about the speech. Everything is about the speaker. Right. Nothing is about the ideas. It's all just about who is saying them. Right. And who is saying them matters most of all. And it's, it's. I, I mean, I, your intro just before you started that lambasting a broadside <laughs> against me. Uh, um, I, I couldn't agree more. I look, I mean, uh, you're younger than me. I'm 39 now. But uh, I grew up with these things not like this. I grew up in Britain in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, race, sure, there were places where it was an issue, but you know, at a multiracial state school, it wasn't like that was ever an issue for us. Uh, we grew up in a diverse society. Uh, you know, um, gay changed over the time, but uh, it seemed to be getting better. Uh, there'd been a fight for women's rights, which are broadly speaking, you know, just advanced over the course of the century and seemed to be getting better. And then at some point in the last 10 years, we all just, it was like watching a train getting into a station, slowing down and then smashing ahead across some barricade uh, with a new injection of steam. You know, what I what I love about your book particularly is that you bring up Martin Luther King mm. Jr.'s dream, right? And we all learned about this dream. You know, he, he dreamt one day he would wake up and that his children would be judged not based off of the color of their skin, but on uh, based on the content of their character. Yeah. And so what he was aspiring towards was racial indifference, right. which is what I experienced. And I always say sure. to me, the dream decade felt like the 90s. Right, where I did, I never yeah. considered, uh, you know, in the 90s, it, I always call it like Mickey Mouse land. Everyone was happy, we were wearing overalls, you had like the Fresh Prince of Bel Air TV mm-hmm. uh, was, mm-hmm. was even less tense and racial. Right. Right. It's, right. So it's, it's, it really has, it, there's the cultural climate in and of itself right. has completely shifted. And I'm thinking to myself, how did we go from being this period of what felt like racial indifference? to just full steam ahead yes. into all that matters yeah. is race. Yeah. Well, or other protected characteristics as they're seen. Right. Uh, race is probably the most prevalent one and the one which blows up most, you know, dramatically. But it can. I mean, I, I address gay women and trans in the same book. And uh, each of them can blow up, obviously, themselves, as you well know. I mean... Um, and these things, in my view, are deranging people. We're all trying to work out what it is that's happened that could that could could have made this so. It's we're trying to work out what it means to live in an era where everything can be politicized, every single thing. Uh, uh, I, I, I'm there are ludicrous examples I give in the book of you know casting decisions of you know TV series 
uh, and 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 these become the basis for sort of race wars online. Uh, uh, is is X actor uh, actually gay and therefore allowed to play a gay character? Uh, we sort of thought yes till yesterday. Acting used to mean acting. Yeah, pretending. Right? The whole thing is pretending. <laughs> is pretending, um, right? And uh, and so there's that. But just to get back to the point you make about the Martin Luther King quote, one of the most fascinating things about this, which I try to unravel in the book, is how we got from there as the aspiration to actually exactly the opposite half a century later. So uh, um, a professor of whiteness studies at an American university, a tenured... Uh, that's uh, that's a real, just so everybody's listening, he's not making that up. No. Uh, there, there are is now all of these courses, which mm-hmm. these didn't exist even when I was in college, no. whiteness studies. Yeah. Um, and uh, I do want to point out, just so we're clear here, and you brought up this in your book, we have African-American studies. There are gay studies. These are, are typically congratulatory studies, right. which is congratulations for being black. Let's celebrate yeah. uh, blackness in the history of the world. Let's celebrate yeah. gay and the history right. of being gay. And sort of untold histories, right. untold stories, things that maybe could be brought out more. Exactly. That's the same in everything other than whiteness studies. Whiteness, and whiteness studies, studies consists of just an attack on white people for being white. That's correct. And is just so divisive it makes you weep when you read this stuff. Anyhow, I mention it because... Uh, uh, just uh, earlier this year, uh, as a talk by this academic of whiteness studies, who is, by the way, white herself, and always starts off talks by saying, you know, it's inherently problematic that I'm here, and I recognize it just by being here and speaking, I am taking away all that gobbledygook. Uh, but she she does this, and she actually says in this lecture at Boston University earlier this year that people, <laughs> if you don't treat people by the color of their skin, and you try to treat them by their character, that's problematic. Right. So we've okay. done the exact we've, opposite. We've unwoven it. In, it. in half a century, we've unwoven the dream to be no race matters most. And from there, we have the other things. The other inherited characteristics matter most of all. And this is, this is hell. And it's deranging people. And it's going to get a lot worse until we say, stop. For God's sake, stop. Right. And we've just got to show people where this is going. Right. It, it's funny because as I was reading your book, I was kind of considering when is the first time I was sort of aware of the color of my skin or that there were differences. Mm. Um, and my earliest my earliest childhood memory of it is, you know, growing up, I had two best friends. One was Hispanic um, and one was black. And uh, we were best friends all throughout elementary school where everyone's allowed to be in everybody's classes. And then we take state testing exams. Right. And I t- scored higher. Right, so I was then placed in middle school, and you, I know you guys have a different system here in the UK, but uh, call it age eleven is when they start separating you based on how, how you know how you test. Right. And so in my class, I had all white people just because I test I tested higher, um, and all of my classmates happened to be white. And at that moment, the black girls started bullying me in school, saying that I was acting white. Right? right, because right, right. I had friends. Right. So actually, the fir- the earliest introduction to me of mm. being aware of my skin color was introduced to me by black people, right. and and then you started we started learning a bit about black history, and I started being told that you know the reason why black people are not testing as well or doing that well is because of the history right. of slavery and racism, not based off of our, de- our of our decisions or how we're you know how much effort we're putting into our schoolwork. Mm. Um, so I always think I just think that that's kind of an interesting consideration. Yeah, because if if White people are supposedly uh, the problem, right? Right. Why did I first feel that when I was bullied for my skin color, right, right. it's actually coming to me from black people and this idea of what it means to be black and what it means to be white, and right. that's what they're teaching, and and also what they actually mean by this. Right. So one of the things is attaching certain characteristics to white people which therefore black people shouldn't wish to attain. I mean, we see this madness. I give example after example in the book of people like, people saying that the truth is basically a Western white concept. Mm. It's like white people who came up with the idea of truth. <laughs> right. Therefore, black people shouldn't have any truck with this. Right. What? Well, this is how you start to get to now they're considering in the SATs, which is our standardized testing uh, to get into university. Right. Um diversity scoring. Like right. they're just going to start giving you points based off of the color of your skin. Yeah, so yeah. the institutionalization the institutionalization of all of this is kind of This is and, and the worst thing about this is I mean when I started looking into this a few years ago I thought okay this is look, this is crazy stuff happening on campus. Then the campus broke out into the real world and the most shocking thing for me has been the discovery of the major corporations, private and public companies, government 
where all of this stuff is happening as well. It's not like, this isn't just a problem at Berkeley, you know, would that it were, we could all just say, look, students were always a bit crazy. They're crazy at the moment in particular. No, this is, this is major companies. These are like, um, uh, uh, companies that you would have thought would have held a kind of line of just having a profit motive, for right. instance, going all in for this stuff, implicit bias training, uh, uh, um, quota systems, all of that. Right. And, and, and I, my view is that they're all going to find out the same problem in the same order, which is if you keep treating people by these characteristics, several things happen, particularly in the business world. You promote people who were quite near the top anyway. So, for instance, there will be quite privileged groups of people, for instance, who went to the right university who happened to be black, and you promote them in particular, mm -hmm. when they probably would have got there anyway. And if you do the same thing with women or with gay people or something, you, you nudge them up a bit. Then you have this thing of, well, who has priority? And nobody's sorted that out yet. Nobody's worked that out, and they're not going to because it can't be worked out. But then at some point you realize, you know, we have no social mobility at all. And that, in my view, is one of the things that companies in particular are discovering. They think they're getting all sorts of other things right. And they discover afterwards, actually, we've just created a new hierarchy of privileged people who were quite privileged already. Right. And we have no class mobility at all. You know, what I really love is uh, Thomas Sowell, who, who's one of my favorite authors, sure. you know, talks about, he says that when you get so used to special treatment, being treated the same starts to feel like discrimination. Right. right. So like, right. when you're so used to people saying that you deserve extra and you and and this should all be about you, 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 right. people say, actually, we're going to take all that away. Everybody's the same. They feel like it's an attack. Right. It's an attack on them. And it's funny that you're saying that this is now being corporatized, this, uh, you know, this idea of inclusivity, because I noticed this even for the first time this year, especially, um, you know, LBGT. Right. It started as a first as a, a weekend. Right, mm -hmm. <laughs> weekend. Maybe it was a day, a yeah, March. Yeah, yeah. Then it became a weekend. Yeah. Then it became a week. Mm. Now it's a month. It's a full time job. It's, now. it's a full time <laughs> job now, right? And I'm exhausted. I'm, I'm actually yeah, yeah. just exhausted yeah, yeah. with it. I mean, I've never, I, I've never been so exhausted with yeah. the, with seeing a rainbow in my life. Yeah, so I'm yeah. walking down the street, and there's this just the size in DC of these these flags now yeah. in stores. So yeah, there's yeah. a Every furniture store, a furniture yeah, store yeah. I love. Right, I, mean, I go in, and I'm thinking to myself. Were gay people not allowed to shop in furniture yeah, yeah. stores? I have this. I mean, as you, as, <laughs> as you know, I'm gay, so I can, I can I can blow some of this open in a way that might no, not be allowed. To, well, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I should just do that one back on yeah. you, shouldn't I? Um, no, um, but you know, look, being gay isn't a full time job. Being black isn't either, yeah. by the way. Yeah, no, no, no I'd heard that. <laughs> Um, and uh, and I've just been, and that's why I sort of tried to blow apart gay a bit in the opening chapter. It's to say, these are the things that we just don't know about. These are the things it's not about. And, uh, you know, I've, I've had this with the Pride thing for, for years. I mean, you know, um, Barclays Bank in the UK uh, had this big thing with Pride last year before it got even bigger this year of huge advertising campaign with a rainbow Barclays Bank. Love happens here. Okay. I don't want love to happen here. I just want you not to charge me when I lose, you know, that month's statements if I want a reprint. <laughs> yeah. It's really like, I don't want LGBT awareness, love pumped into it. I just, right. I just like and very basic I, banking services I'm after. I've and always thought it, it. it cheapens actually. And I talked to, you know, we're both friends with Dave Rubin. He and yeah. I have talked about this all the time where I say that the way that this month is now representing gay people. Right. My experiences with gay with gay men, my creative director is gay. I'm good friends with Dave Rubin. I consider gay, gay men to be just like very intellectual, right? This this well, sort of movement has now become very whiny, very in your face. The only right. way that you can be gay is if it's like you have to shout in everybody's right. face, I'm gay, I'm sure. gay, I'm gay, and you're going to take it and you're going to yeah, like yeah, it. Yeah. That's not a way to be black. Right. That's not a way to be a woman. That's not a way to be gay. It's not a way no. to be anything. I mean, if I can say so, um, my experience with gay men is that they're gay. <laughs> right, exactly. Right? There's no type beyond that. Right. There are bright ones. There are stupid ones. There are nice ones, nasty ones, like every other group of people in right. the world. And it, one of the oddities in all of this is what's really going on here. I, I, I think that the gay one, by the way, is fascinating for, for, for me for a number of reasons. But one is, I think there's been a massive divide throughout gay history, which has really been weaponized recently. And that's the difference between people who are gay and people who are queer. 
And I think I'm the first person to tread into this unbelievable minefield, but let me just keep on running. Um, gay people pretty much just discover they're gay at some point and want to live their lives like everyone else, want to bank in the bank like everyone else, have a job like everyone else and whatever. Um, queer is different and it always has been. And queer is being gay is just the first step to a much bigger campaign, which includes bringing down the system in some way mm -hmm. or undermining the system or uh, um, deconstructing the system. And what has happened in recent years is the prevalence of queer over gay. And this, I maintain, is happening in every other identity case as well. It's like the people who I, I have, a, you mentioned Thomas Sowell earlier. I have an example in the book, which is one of my absolutely favorite examples of idiocy of all time. London School of Economics ran a review of one of Thomas Sowell's books a few years ago, and they had to have a correction at the end of the article. And the correction at the end of the article uh, uh, contained the wonderful words. An earlier version of this article contained the words, easy for a white man to say, <laughs> because the reviewer had reviewed Thomas Sowell's latest book and had done an attack on him for being a privileged white man. Oh my god. Not goodness. knowing Thomas Sowell. <laughs> he's, he's black. He's really, he's black. He is black. He's black. It's very hard to pretend <laughs> otherwise. But this academic reviewing the book didn't know that and just decided to go, wait, bang, straight yeah. in our identity. Let's get him for being white. And you see, that, and that, that sort of thing tells us something. I, I like it not just because it's a, an academic who's been humiliated reviewing a book by somebody much better than him, it's the fact that it reveals one of the things that's going on, which is weaponizing race, like weaponizing sex, gender, sexuality, and so on, for some other aim that is nothing to do with the inherent characteristic. The aim is to weaponize these things to do something else. Which is to gain power, which is what I talk right. about. And you talk about this a little bit in your book. So let's imagine that they are being virtuous and mm -hmm. they're correct, right? And white people, it's a problem for, for you to be white, okay? Let's just accept that reality for a second. And you should have extreme white guilt. And you should always listen to black people when they mm -hmm. speak um, because you don't realize your own inherent racism. Let's mm -hmm. live that crazy reality for a second. Mm -hmm. Why don't they like me? Why right. can't I speak? Right, right, right. Why well, is Candace Owens kicked out of the club? Why right. is it? Why is it that? Oh no, 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 no! You shut right. up. Why isn't Peter T allowed to be gay anymore? Why am I not allowed to be black anymore? Right. Now, as you know, I, I I write about this. I write about you as a, as a figure in the book because I thought what happened with you is exactly on the cusp of this. Yes, um, you and a small number of other people, but in each of the areas I write about get this treatment. One of the most, one of the first one I write about is Peter Thiel. He comes out for Trump in 2016. He's the first person on Republican uh, national platform to say, proud to be gay, proud to be American, proud to be a Republican. Should have been a great moment for the gay, remaining gay rights movement, certainly what remains of the gay press. No, 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 they hated it. Uh, Advocate, the biggest gay magazine in the US, chucks Peter Thiel out of the church of gay. He runs a piece saying, okay, Peter Thiel may sleep with men, but in no way is he gay. <laughs> so, wow. Okay. Wow. Um, what do you have to do? <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think I know the answer. The answer is not to be gay, it's to be queer. You've got to, you've got to do something else. You've got to do politics, mm -hmm. specifically a form of aggressive left-wing identitarian politics. And Peter Thiel didn't do that. He just is gay and said what he thought about the candidate, but he gets chucked out of the church of gay for it. You had this, uh, Kanye West had this. Kanye West gets chucked out of the church of black by Ta-Nehisi Coates in the Atlantic. Uh, he says, after, after, after uh, what happened with you and, and the tweet and then the meeting with Trump, Ta-Nehisi Coates, probably the most prominent, revered black writer in America these days, says basically Kanye isn't black. And I'm just fascinated by this. One other, by the way, Jermaine Greer, the most prominent, amazing living feminist legend. She gets one thing wrong and she gets chucked out of the church of women. Right. It's, I quote these people saying, Jermaine Greer is no longer a feminist. What? Jermaine Greer isn't a feminist? What are you doing? It's the same thing. It's, it's using these things as some kind of battering ram mm -hmm. for a political campaign. Exactly. And everyone like you 
who doesn't take part in it has to be chucked out. Otherwise, the battering ram might not work so well. Well, it exposes them for what they are. You're not interested in in giving a platform to black people unless all black people are allowed to speak about their experiences and how they've come to different conclusions. If it, you know that what they're basically saying is that all black people must think and act alike, right? And yeah. and and that's it, it's inherently racist. You're looking at the color of yeah, my skin yeah. and you're already assigning everything that you need to know about my life. Right. What's the point in being an individual? Right. And that's the whole point is they don't want individuals. No. They want to collectivize. It's once you're able to collectivize and create these sort of racial unions, you can then can go after people and you can mm. and you can demand power. Yeah. And and and, and by any means necessary, right? Yeah. By by any means necessary. We're doing this because yeah. no you're not. You're doing it because you want power. Right. And um, you know, and I, I try to separate because I, I do believe that there is, you know, not a higher power, but there there's the organization on uh, on beneath it, which is funded, right? Like when you get these groups like Black Lives Matter, right? We know that they're getting injected millions of dollars by political interest groups, but then what about the person who's in the street boycotting and screaming? Mm. I don't believe that person is as guilty as the political interest group because they actually have, mm. they're having their minds warped. And, right. and this mind warping happens at the education level. Well, yeah, but let's, let's also go there beneath that of what's really going on. Um, I, th I, think this, I think this whole thing the, the use of identity, the weaponization of identity, intersectionality, all this stuff. I think we need to take this much more seriously than we've taken it. I think it's the most plausible, it's a hideous attempt, but it's the most plausible attempt since the Cold War to inject an entire new religion into our societies. And it's working because bits of it were already there. Bits of the Marxist bit of it, for instance, were already there. But I mention this and try to explain how it works because... Firstly, we need to know how it works if we're going to take it apart. Right. But secondly, because it's caught on because it, it's something to do, Candice. It's really something to do. And if you say to people, you know, um, find meaning where you will in your lives, some people can do that. It, By the way, you can only do it if you're guided by adults who can tell you what a good life would be, for instance. But in the absence of all that, Something that comes along with the characteristics of religion, which says you've got to play a part in this to solve every problem on this earth now, and it can be done. Okay, we're going to we're going to unlock the uh, interlocking oppressions, and we are going to do it in our lifetimes so that everybody is free and happy and rich. Okay, that's something to do. Right. That's something to do. It's it gives meaning. So. This, this can't just be pulled apart on the level of, for instance, built-in um, uh, contradictions. I, when I started looking at this, you know, I started looking at it thinking, the contradictions are so inherent and so preposterous that it must fall apart because of that. But no. Firstly, because everything built on the Marxist ideas doesn't mind contradictions. Marxism continuously finds you can just keep rushing at contradictions. Of it course. doesn't matter. You need the contradictions that, that you can so embrace them. But but this this central thing is it's appealing because it's a really serious grab for what is otherwise empty terrain of what we're doing here. This is a purpose. This gives life meaning horrible meaning that is going to end in ever, ever greater fracturing of our societies, but it's something to do. It is something to do, but what, what also interests me is just that it's operating under this, this false thesis, this idea yes. that society can be perfected. Yeah, right? yeah, I know. That society yeah, is perfectible. Yeah. Hey, follow us. What we're going to do is we're going to weed out all of these uh, bad people. And, and this is sort of like the Marxist, you know, the, this is where you got all these Marxists and these socialists that are popping up because mm -hmm. they think that society is perfectable. So they think that you can actually get to a point in society where there are just no differences, and, and where the, everything yeah. is the same. And, yeah, and, people, and they, people are perfectable. People are perfectable. Yeah, like you're just yeah. going to remove humanity. Yeah. Um, and, and that's really scary. And it, it sort of, uh, it takes this train of the conversation into what you and I were discussing uh, which is about forgiveness, yeah, right? Yeah. The ability to 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 be wrong, to be imperfect. Yeah. And I have been fascinated with this conversation since I was in high school and I went through a hate crime, uh, what was classified as a hate crime when I received racist voicemails. Um, mm. And 
the society that I was living in was so obsessed with painting these people that had called me um, as my oppressors. These were bad people. These were right. rotten racists, even though the youngest person that, you know, called me and said these horrific things was 14. Like 14. Imagine just you're 14, you're a racist, you're canceled, right? And what that does to the yeah. psyche of a child. Um, and, and we're seeing this more and more today. And yeah. for me, it was you're a victim. That's it. Right. You've been victimized. That's all you can ever be as a victim. Right. And and just think about that. The idea that mm. you can't evolve, that you can't change, that you can't yeah. do things that do suck um, is a new thing that's permeating throughout so yeah. society. And I think it is the most dangerous thing in the entire world that is mm. going to result in so many suicides for kids that are growing right. up in the internet age because the internet is allowing their youth to be mm. captured permanently. Where yeah, I was allowed yeah. to be a horrible person in middle school right. and then evolve. Right. That's... Um you hit on one of the things that matters most to me in all of this and which I just cannot get enough people to focus on. Um, I, I think the, I, I have interlude chapters in this book in The Madness of Crowds, one of which is about tech derangement, where I try to explain why I think it's happened, why, why tech has sped this up, which is something we're all familiar with in some ways, but we need to be reminded of. But the, the final one of these interludes I do is on this, on forgiveness. And I... As I say, it, it's in some ways the thing that matters most because we've we, we've created a society where everybody has to live with their worst joke all the time, forever. And you know, I quote that it's not as if we it's not as if we're starting from scratch and trying to think about this problem. There's been an awful lot of thinking in history about this issue of forgiveness and how to forgive, and 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 so you know we have a lot of people to help us. Uh, I quote in the book an amazing essay from the 1950s by the philosopher Hannah Arendt, who said in a talk, she, she's an amazing uh, piece on work and society, and she said then, in the 50s, the biggest problem for human beings has always been the conundrum of action in the world. We don't, we've never been able to know how to work out the consequences of any of our actions in the world. This was always so. And she says... Of course, the only mechanism as a species we've come up with to, to cope with the unbelievable, otherwise catastrophe of action is forgiveness, is mechanisms of forgiveness. Now, in the 50s, that was an incredibly perceptive and wise thing to say. In the 21st century, it's crucial to think about this because if, if the unbelievable problem of acting in the world was always there, was always on our minds. How do I know what the reverberations will be of the statement I'm making at the moment or the thing I'm doing now or the person I'm moving towards there or the thing I'm doing? If that was always the case, then in the age we live in, it's just metastasized to an extent that could be wonderful, but actually without the mechanism of forgiveness is catastrophic. And Everybody is focused on the first bit of it. Everybody is focused on it. Like, who can we destroy today? Who can we cancel today? Who can we dig something up on today? In the hope that it'll never happen to you. But it'll happen to all of us because we're all flawed. We all make mistakes. We've all done things wrong, said things wrong in our life. And the question, as I say, nobody, I can, I can get nobody to focus on is what would forgiveness look like for that? I give examples in the book of like somebody uh, I know who sent out a tweet 12 years ago making a joke about the attractiveness of a woman's breasts. Uh, obviously, this guy has the, um, the fatal collection of flaws of being straight, white, and, and male. And as we know, straight white men should should never express any interest in female breasts. That's I correct. mean, it would be the most unnatural thing so unnatural. imaginable. Like, what would give you that idea? <laughs> Um, and, uh, but he did this. It wasn't, it wasn't the greatest thing in his life. It wasn't his smartest or wisest ever thing to do. 12 years after he does it, uh, it comes back. It, uh, on the basis of that, among other things, he is not allowed to have a position that on a advisory quango of no significance, particularly in the UK. And I just watched this episode and I watched all of his enemies and critics going over this. And I just thought, We've got to work out, for instance, if you made a joke about a woman's breasts 12 years ago and how attractive you found them, is there any statute of limitations on that? Like 20 years, 40 years, uh, 100 years? And the answer maybe is no, never, ever. You're stuck with it. You can't do anything. Do, do Hide. Hide away. And, 
And that's happening to everybody. And we've got to work out an answer to this. It, it just it genuinely scares me. It terrifies yeah. me. I, I mean, I was saved by evolution. We are all saved by evolution. We're all saved by the ability to grow. And what I always find to be astonishing is the disconnect between the adults that are, are having this conversation who never grew up with technology, right? Mm. And the reason why they're able to kind of speak from this position of taking the moral high ground is because they didn't, they were allowed to be horrible people. And mm. they were, not only did did their, they didn't have the phones to, yeah. to capture, remember it, they've forgotten it that is the ability like our as human beings our right to forget even is so important it's so important to say you know what i don't even remember that that bad but maybe it's a bad relationship it was a bad day our ability to forget is a gift yes our minds are very good at this are very good at that and and technology takes that gift away that's the one thing technology doesn't do it never forgets no it's it's right in front of you for the rest of your life for the rest of your life and to see these adults not understand the implications and i and I, i i plead with people of my generation because we're now birthing birthing children. Do you right. understand if, if we don't start speaking out against this now and saying, I can guarantee right. you my children are going to do some stupid things. Yeah, I can yeah, guarantee yeah. you right now, please already forgive me for whatever it, whatever it is in our family, for whatever it is that my child does that's stupid in a WhatsApp chat right. or in a, in a Snapchat chat because that's a part of being a child is yeah. you do – kids are stupid. And, 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 and kids are stupid and – are learning as they go along and have to be able to make mistakes. And to some extent, this is the case with adults as well. And there are different societal norms and expectations about this. We've been trying to change them very fast. This is why I'm fascinated by the issue, the whole issue of the, the, the weaponization of relations between the sexes. Because like, men and women have to be able to get on. Right. They have to be able to get <laughs> on. And... There's an expectation at the moment, I write about it at one point in the book, in the corporate world in particular at the moment, but this happens pretty much in every bit of a level of employment in, in the UK and I think in the US. You ask this question, like, since still now about 20% of people meet their life partner in the workplace, what's the deal with asking somebody out for a coffee or a drink? And as far as I can work it out, and I, I quote some people I've spoken to in the book about this, but as far as I can work out, the deal is currently this. You can't do it and shouldn't do it because you could bring down your whole career unless you deploy it once with 100% accuracy that the person you're trying it on is to be your life mate. Well, that's about that's about right. That's like that's That's a really... That's that's a big risk for that coffee or drink request. Yeah. And unsustainable. Totally unsustainable. I I make the joke and it's and, and I'm only half joking when I say if, if if you know being gay could be a choice. If I was a man, I'd choose to be gay. Because <laughs> you're always you're always treading in in, in really yeah. scary territory with this yes. rise of radical feminism. Right. And and here's the the other side of it, which no one is really discussing, is that these radical feminists who make this a problem, right? Who everything mm. it's now me too. You look at me, yeah. you find me attractive, I've been me too, right? right? You, you, you're mm. me too. Mm. Um if you if you've said a joke that was, you know, maybe a, 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 a sexual Sexual nod right. or something said that I looked good today, right? right. Or sexy today. Uh, you're now me too. The other side of that, though, is that what you're doing is you're turning men sort of into this uh, tail in between, tail in yes. between the legs they're, dogs. They're trying to emasculate men. Emasculate men. But oh. the biological underpinning of this is very interesting is the feminists don't want that. Oh, no, no, no. They don't Absolutely. want that. Absolutely. They're making men they don't want. They don't want. Right. Sure. And, and a stunning piece, and you have to read it. Promise me you'll read it, sure. is Lena Dunham. Oh, yeah. recently wrote a piece yes. in the New York Times a great fan about of how Dunham. she just like, she could, oh my God, she's totally nuts. You can actually see, she's mm. now coping with the fact, and she actually says mm. in the article, has Me Too gone too far? Right. This guy won't make a move on me. Right, right. And I'm like, you're the Who author of Radical, yeah, yeah, you're the author of Radical Feminism. Right. This is yeah. what, you made your bed laying yeah, it. Men, oh no, no men hit on me. No yeah. men come up to who me. Well, what dare? do you think, who would dare come up yeah. to you and say anything? Yeah. No, I, and it's not because of the way she looks. She is disgusting in my opinion. I think she's gross. But aside from that, even if a guy would tread that territory, He's read her pieces. You've got to be crazy to go up to her and say, would you like to go out on a date? Yeah, no, it's, it's like going up to a nuclear device. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> There's right. There's a mushroom cloud right. just... every which way you go. Yeah. Um, look, the, the, the whole, the whole uh, uh, um, business of this in a way touches on the central problem, which is if there's a central problem to all of these crowd madnesses, it's this. We're pretending we know about things we don't know. And we're pretending to not know about things we knew till yesterday. 
Okay, so we are pretending we know for sure that a little boy who is slightly effeminate actually is a girl and should be operated on at the soonest possible time because they're actually trans. We don't really know enough about trans. Right. We really don't know enough, certainly not enough to make experiments on children. And But we're pretending we're, pretending we're absolutely certain what that is. At the same time, we're pretending we don't know things about things like relations between the sexes that we all knew till yesterday. Of course. I love that. We all we all knew it until yesterday. We all know. I mean, men, uh, women crave men that are that are are, are masculine. That they feel can mm. take care of the home. There right. that there is a biological inescapable component right. of that that's never going to go away. So you you feminists, what are you looking for? Oof. A guy who's scared to talk to you and and, and what you're going to run the household and scream at him the whole time? They don't right. want that. Get real. Right. And also underneath this is this whole thing. I mean, one way out of this, I try to explain is how about recognizing that just as there are some forms of power, if you want to look at the whole world as being only about power and never having anything to do with love, for instance, or forgiveness or charity or anything else, let's say the whole world is to do with power. And let's say there are some forms of power, which historically speaking, and even to some extent today are particularly held by particular groups of people. Why don't you recognize that different forms of power exist as well? By the way, I mean, I made this point recently at a conference uh, of um, hundreds of women in uh, London. It, it didn't go down very well, but but I tried it out anyway, <laughs> uh, which was to point this out. There are forms of power that only women have. And uh, when I was immediately attacked, like, like what? So, well, here, here's one. I, I, I don't, th I, I think every woman knows what I'm talking about. I think most, almost all men do. And I say, I don't think any man has the power to derange some, a member of the opposite sex some years or decades older than them and make them risk destroying their entire life for a moment. I, I don't think that even a sort of very attractive young man in his 20s can completely derange a woman in her 40s or 50s to the extent that she could risk everything. Right. Okay. That is a power that some, maybe a lot, maybe even most women do have. And they know how to use it. It's biblical. They know how to use it's it. Biblical. It is. It is. Since the beginning it, of time. Since the beginning of time, we have all known of this power. Now, why do you never hear anyone talking about that power? Well, because they, there are people talking about it. Me. We don't, right. we're not, I'm not allowed to be a woman after I talk about no. it. So no, not not a woman. I'm not, not a black. woman. I'm not black because I talk about that all the time. Yeah. I say if if we could choose, actually pick our genders at birth, mm. I would pick being a woman. I would pick being female every <laughs> single time, right? Every single time, it's just easier. And then and and then they say, oh, you know, and it, there's there's truth to everything. If you're more attractive, it's easier, right? Right. And then all we're the kind of seeing this complex thing mm. where they're making it wrong to be attractive. That's yes. a new, and that's something that's bubbling under the surface too. And you talked a little bit about um, Army Hammer, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Like you're you're attractive. Right. This is also a component of it that yeah. they're trying to unlock is is to make everybody ugly, yes. right? So if you aspire to shower and brush your hair in the morning and look right. okay, there's something inherently wrong with you, right? But, but behind all of the characteristics, the, the, the main ones, uh, race, uh, gender, sex, uh, uh, gay, trans. Uh, beneath these are these new ones that keep bubbling up. One is, yeah, the attractiveness privilege. Uh, because all, all the stats show that, yeah, uh, people who are, who are more attractive disproportionately get on. Saying I like somebody uh, that's attractive is like saying I like good food. Right. And uh, 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 there's also, of course, the one coming along at the same time as that one, which is obviously to do with uh, obesity, fatness. Don't even get me into the fat Do we celebrate movement. it? Do we ever criticize? And so on. But yes, the... The, 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 when people tread across, there are just there are some people who lay all across all of these. I give the example of Army Hammer because after he appears and call me by your name, they just like he, they go for him for being white and not gay and attractive and attractive, which is even worse. And like who who thinks that, for instance, Hollywood films should mainly be cast filled with unattractive people? Hollywood now. Hollywood now. <laughs> Hollywood now. Right. Hollywood now. And and th again, they're denying sort of just the, the way things actually are, which is that mm. people prefer to look at things that are attractive in the same yes. way that people prefer to eat food that tastes good. Yeah, I give an right? example in, in, in the book of, I think in Time magazine uh, uh, last year, there's a, a study that, uh, that reports that the disturbing finding that uh, women and gay men still disproportionately find attractive men with muscles attractive. It's and they're like, and, and it's presented as, 
what can we do about this? Right, right. And, and, how here's, can we, and here's what they do about it. How can we rectify their right, brains? Right, these, they're trying to change our, our, our brain right, waves right, or right, something right. to reprogram them. And you yeah. get these like Dove commercials with real women, right? Oh, real yeah, women yeah. shouldn't be clinically obese, right? right. I, I, and I respect all different types. And mm. there are thinner women, there are women with curbs. And, but when you're now telling me that it's mandatory that I find a woman that is clinically obese to be attractive, mm. you're insulting my intelligence. Well, that, that keeps happening though, doesn't it? I mean, you, you keep getting versions of this. I say this, I mean, one of the tripwires I've decided to run all over in this book is the whole trans thing. And I, one of the things I thought that got me most interested in that was the, the, the year of trans, the Caitlyn Jenner year, um, when she did a clean sweep of the awards uh, season across every awards uh, um, show in America. Um, and uh, one of the things that fascinated me most about it was it had gone beyond tolerance. It had gone beyond, okay, look, if, if that's what you think you are, and like, you know, good luck. It had gone beyond that. It got to the stage of don't just admire her, um, find her attractive. You don't think she's attractive? Bigot. Bigot. Yeah. Bigot. You hear that if, if for even on in in the race argument, they say that if you're a white man, you don't find black women attractive. You're racist. Right. I'm like, just am, am I the only person that has a type? Like people have types, right? There are some people that like people that are shorter, taller, a little thicker, a little skinnier, right. and and now they're trying to assign these really harsh terms on people just having taste buds. Right. It's it's. I th one of the one of the big things we're trying to work out seems to me this, and this is this is a version of it, but there are there are ones to do with what you'd like to attain in your life career-wise, which are quite similar. Um, there's this thing in the tech world, which is you know you know um, uh, machine learning fairness. You know about this? Oh yes, yes, yes. It's really interesting. This is an attempt to be. It says we as human beings have inherent biases, and we can't make the machines learn our biases. So we will teach the machines to be unbiased. Of course, actually what you do is you teach the machines to do um, really unnatural versions of history among other things. Now, behind it is quite a good intent in a way. And it, the intent is something like this. If you're a young woman growing up now and you want to be a physicist and you type physicists into Google and look at Google images, the likelihood is you'll see a lot of dead white males. And uh, those people concerned about this and with machine learning fairness and the people in Silicon Valley think, how can we make sure that a girl who wants to be a physicist isn't put off becoming a physicist because she thinks only sort of dead, to be that, to do that, she'd have to be white, male, and also dead. And she doesn't see any of these as being achievable. So they want to stop that happening. And I think that in a way is a laudable aspiration in the same way that Trying to take the any stigma away from people being attracted to whoever they're attracted to seems to me quite a laudable uh, thing to do, at least to destigmatize those sorts of things. Fine, but that's not what's happening. What keeps happening is the weaponization and the turning of it into something else. Right. Um, it's you're it's, hitting at what Thomas Sowell says about socialism. Sounds great on paper. Right. Right. <laughs> and. By the way, this happens with history now. Right. This happens with history. So the search engines, I go into this in some detail, the search engines show something that is not true. Um, that, And by the way, you can do this with interracial relationships as well. Uh, if you do, I mean, this is, this is really crazy, but fascinating stuff. If you type into uh, 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 Google Images, you want to see a, um, a black couple, you get black couples, okay? If you want Asian couples, you get Asian couples. If you want white couples, you get black couples or what? interracial couples. Or you get gay couples with mixed race babies. No way. Oh, yeah, I yeah. do not believe yeah, this. Yeah, I'll show it to you. I um, do not believe this. It's amazing. This is the and, problemization of being white. Right. Yeah. And it happens with gay as well. Gay couple, Google, search, Google image search, you get gay couples. Different uh, types of gay couples, different ages and stuff. They're basically happy gay couples. Straight couples into Google image search, you get some straight couples, but gay couples a lot. And then before you know it, you're onto like lesbians with gay children and, and they're all, everyone's black. Right. And so, or I wonder what family would turn back on Google. Right. I wonder what family, it, it, it family work, photos. Again, are. it entirely depends on what racial characteristic you put in and what uh, sexual orientation you put right. in. What's happening here? It seems to me very obvious that the search engines are saying, we think you should you should get what you want if you want Asians or black or gay. If you dare search for straight couple or white couple, we know who you are, bigot, 
Right. And we're sticking two fingers and we go, how dare you search for this? How dare you? Now, this stuff is, is, is deranging because once you, once you notice it and everyone's noticed bits of it, it doesn't necessarily have to be just, you know, online search terms. It happens in advertising. All of these things are being forced on us. And I just think we need to say, just, just for the love of God, stop for a moment. Reflect on where you're taking us. You're taking us to a future where everything is about divisiveness. Everything is about inherent characteristics you can never escape from and should never wish to escape from. And we're telling you what they are. It's actually like, it's it's really funny that you say that because so I'm, I'm, I'm writing my book now and there's a whole chapter that is called Goodness Versus Truth. Right. And what I what I talk about is what is the, what is the core difference between me and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Born the same year, both minorities couldn't be on further opposite sides of the political spectrum, right? The difference is she pursues goodness, I pursue truth, right? And it, it's a stunning consideration because socialists, right, believe that they're pursuing goodness, right? right. But when you when you pursue goodness, you will very quickly get on a very corrupt yeah. and dishonest path. It's the only way. So take, for example, Game of Thrones. The articles that came out and said that there wasn't enough minority representation right. in medieval Europe. Yeah. I just watched a series of Chernobyl and I made the joke to my husband, they're just, there's no black people here in Ukraine. <laughs> why? 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 Why are there no black people here in Ukraine Very in Chernobyl? But it's the joke that was I'm the, making. Was the gay <laughs> was the gay community of Chernobyl I, at all? No, it was not. Why were there no trans people no trans being poisoned people, in Chernobyl? No black people. But and, and we're outrageous. joking, but it's not a joke. You can no, no longer no, no. decipher between jokes and reality anymore because someone will write that article. Yes. The pursuit of goodness, yes. right? Chernobyl. Yeah. It doesn't matter what actually is, happened. We need more black people. We need right. more black actors, and that's what we need to be casting out of our screens. What, what what I worry about in all of this is not just that we're changing the present and the future, but that we're changing the past. Yes. We are we are rewriting the past along current racial lines and current identity lines. It's very dangerous because it suggests to people that what we're doing at the moment could succeed, and it can't. They say it could succeed because it's it's sort of what's always been the case. Now, to go back to your, your truth and goodness divide, it's a very interesting divide. This is... You know, throughout my career, I've trodden on quite a lot of landmines and landmine issues. And I say that this book is my best attempt to try to clear a bit of the minefield for other people to walk across. Right. So you're going to end um, your you're going to end your career. This will be one of your last. Well, yeah, I know. I, I, my, my there's a, there's a system that the American and British military have called the Great Viper in the UK, which fires a rocket across a minefield. It has an explosive trail tail behind it. It lands across the minefield and then detonates. It can't clear the entire minefield, but it can create a path for people to cross. And I say my self appointed task is to be the Great Viper on some of these issues and to help other people cross this path. My publisher says, of course, the thing is we don't know in this. Whether you survive. <laughs> exactly. I hadn't thought about that when I came out with the medal, but but I'm sticking with it anyway. Right. But but my point is, I want us to make it easier for people to talk about these things. You do, a, a number of other people do, but we have to make it easier because they are the conversations people need to have. And why do some of us? Why do some of us do this? Why do we like keep making life harder for I know, ourselves? I know it's because of this thing of believing that the truth matters, and I. You know, it's strange that it's become a kind of old-fashioned or controversial idea, this. But if if there's a reason to do it, it's not just because actually it's you meet better people and you have better friends and much more. It's that it's profoundly demoralizing to people to, to say things they know not to be true. Right. Profoundly demoralizing. To be persuaded that you have to lie about race, gender, trans, and so on. And not not even to be able to say, I, I'd hold on, I don't know about that. I'm not sure if we know that. Even that, it's very demoralizing and it, and it lines people up to pass more and more lies in their lives, in our everyday lives, in our relations with other people. So, so those of us who think that the truth matters have to keep stressing that it matters not for some abstract idea, but because if you wish to pursue truth, you will have a better life. You will have a better life. And that's what I believe for the black community. Yeah, a happier life, a, happier a more productive life, life mm -hmm. a less stressed and unhappy life, a less demoralized life. It'll be a life where 
because you're not doing all of that and you don't have to lie, you can find happiness and meaning wherever you like. It's it's freeing. And that's what I've said to everyone. I gave up liberalism. I've been clean off of liberalism for six years, right? <laughs> and I can't tell you how great my life has come because I looked in the face and I said, this is one massive, this leftism is one massive untruth. Mm. And then I was able to get in the driver's seat of my life. Right. And I was able to be responsible for my life. Right. And I was able to, to assign that personal responsibility and actually head towards my goals and to say, if I have an issue, it's not the white man, right, it's not right. men, it's probably me and there's right. probably something I can do to change it. Wow, how good it feels. Yeah, right. How much I wish I could gift that to the entire world. What I fight to do every day is to gift that freedom to the entire mm. world, the freedom mm. that truth provides when you give mm. up this false idea of, mm. the, of goodness, which is what so many people are striving for, what, mm. what, what should be good versus what is actually true. Yeah, also people can in the pursuit of things they think to be nirvana, they will always create hell. Of course. I mean, that's one of the one of the f few definite things we can say from history is that when people think they can solve the whole thing, the likelihood is they're just going to build up piles of bodies, right. literal and metaphorical. Hello, Venezuela. Um, so this is, I could talk to you literally for hours and hours, um, but we have to wrap this episode and we wrap every episode the same way where you get to leave a voice message, a video voice message for the world. So you look into this camera, we're going to put two minutes on the clock. Wow. Yes. Yes. Wow. And you have to deliver something If they just go, you know what? I just heard Douglas Murray and he just changed my entire life in two minutes. Oh my God. That's no responsibility. You also is it? don't even get that much time to think about it. On your, what sort of thing do people say? Uh, yeah, you 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 know what? There's been a lot. I can't wait till we put them all together. It's it's, <laughs> it's actually it's amazing. It's always kind of the best part of every episode. Right. If you could just leave a message, hey guys, this is this is this is what I want to say to you. Mm. Two minutes, Douglas Murray, wow. on your mark, get set, go. This is a tough one. Um, it makes somebody who's a writer and thinker have to behave like a sage. Um, I should. I would probably say this. I mean, I'm, I'm in a very pos lucky position in my life in that I started becoming a writer when I was in my teens and published my first book very early. And I've had a very good luck in my life of being able to do what I like to do. Uh, not everyone has that, but you can do something like it. I always urge people to run at their enthusiasms, run at the things they're good at. And even if you miss the mark, you could get quite close to it. And that that should be the case in everything in our lives. My own belief is that searching for truth, running towards truth in personal relationships, in what you do in your life, is also about the best thing you can do. Because even if you don't get there, to fall even slightly short is better than almost any other option. So when people say uh, 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 you should, you know, sort of, pursue your dreams and all of this sort of thing. I think, yes, but pursue the truth within it and say what is on your mind as you go. Because a lot of the things that make life work are avoiding great landmines. And sometimes, however, the landmines lie between you and some truth, and so you've got to run straight at it. And uh, as I say, I'm a writer, so I can afford to do that. But I think everybody in their lives can do a version of it. And to live, as Václav Havel said, to live in truth. And that's about the best aspiration I think any of us can hope for. And uh, the rest isn't our business. There it is. That was awesome. Wow, he did it almost in exactly two minutes. Nine seconds left. Right. Thank you so much for stopping nice. by the Candace Owens Show. It's a great pleasure. I could have talked to you for like hours. Thank you guys for watching the latest episode of The Candace Owens Show. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. As many of you guys already know, PragerU is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which means we need your help to keep all of our content free to the public. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation today. I would really appreciate your support.